podcaster's note, uh, I'm currently dealing with really bad allergies right now, so my mouth is really dry and my throat really hurts, so if this episode sounds a bit funky, just a bit ahead of time, you'll know that I'm not feeling great, but I want to get this episode on time because I have work on Saturday and I will not be in town to be able to like release this on time. So I'm putting out what I can. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope to get better soon. Have a good one, guys, and enjoy episode 15. Gamarjoba, and welcome to the history of Sacaravelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto, and this is episode 15. Goodbye, Cocos. Hello, Lazica. In this episode, we will close out the history of Cocos and bring in Lazica. If we're going to tell the truth, though, the Romans have been calling this place Lazica for quite a while. But we haven't heard much about the Cocin Front in quite a while, so I decided to go out and talk about it. In the last episode, we closed out the Farnavaz dynasty and saw the beginning of the Chostroid dynasty. Now, we're going to go all the way back to 131 AD, near the end of Parsman of Valiant's reign, and bring in someone that I mentioned in that episode, Arian of Nicomedia. Around the time that Arian of Nicomedia was on his famous journey through the Black Sea, Colchis was renamed by the most powerful tribe of the region, the Lazi. As a quick reminder, we haven't even covered the region of Colchis since episode 10, and it will probably stay that way for the most part. This is because Colchis, strictly speaking, no longer exists. After this episode, everything Colchis related will not be referenced through its new name, Lazica. So anyways, if you remember back in episode 13, Rome tried to bolster relationships with the Colchian tribes. Then, in 131 AD, a single move by Emperor Hadrian changed Colchian history forever. He sent one of his closest advisors, a man named Flavius Arian, better known as Arian of Nicomedia, out to Cartley. Arian was the governor of Cappadocia and had power over the Colchis region. While in Cartley, he visited Parsman the Valiant, who would be poisoned by the Parthians not even a year later. Cartley was not his only stop during this trip. In fact, we pretty much know one of the main reasons he wanted to stop in the area. Arian of Nicomedia wanted to tour Colchis and see the site of the Golden Fleece. Of course, there was a whole part where he had to do work and scout the area for political reasons, but deep down, he was all about that Golden Fleece. While in Colchis, Arian noticed that the strength of the tribes and their borders were constantly shifting. Along the Black Sea coast, from Trebizond to Dioscurias, were the rather hostile and anarchic tribes of the Mingrelian, Lazai, Sanoi, Makelonoi, and Hiniokai. The Lazai tribe controlled most of the coast up until Dioscurias, after which point the Svans and Abkhaz tribes were beyond Roman control. On a side note, there is a Caucasian tribe named the Apshils who were quite powerful in the region. So powerful, in fact, that their king stylized himself with the Roman name Julianus and was recognized by Emperor Trajan. We only hear about Julianus 60 years after his appointment by Trajan when the philosopher king Marcus Aurelius exiles an Armenian satrap named Tiridat for murdering the Apshil king. Despite the heavy Roman influence in the area, the Colchian tribes refused to Romanize and lose their identities, which is a trait the Georgians have retained to this day. 
if there was a major change to the Koking culture, it came down to their burial practices. Gone were the burial mounds and sky burials we mentioned in past episodes. The probable Christian influence in the area during the 2nd century brought in new burial practices, but it's difficult to place due to a lack of a powerful Kolkian state. Yikes. That was an informational tangent. Back to Arian. It's thanks to Arian's personal inspection of Colchis for Emperor Hadrian that we do get any information about the region. As governor of Cappadocia, he had to oversee the eastern coast of the Black Sea. Arian wrote down his observations in two letters. One was a letter he wrote personally to Hadrian, which offered quite a lot of detail, and the other is called the Periplus of the Euxine Sea. The letter to Hadrian has been lost to the annals of history, which makes interpreting the Periplus annoying since it frequently refers to information shared in the letter to Hadrian. One thing we do know for sure is that Arian did a lot of sightseeing. Most of the places he describes are also spoken of in Jason and the Argonauts, although there were presumably no harpies or clashing rocks. He also makes note of the sufferings of Prometheus and of the strange properties of the Phasis' river water. Overall, the Periplus is more or less a long list of all the things he did in the Black Sea region interspersed with Arian's thoughts and other comments. What's nice is that it does give us information such as travel time between locations and the distances between them just to show us how spread out the cities were in this region. And the most amazing thing is that these observations make the Periplus such an invaluable witness to us as it's a first-hand account of Colchis written from the perspective of a Roman governor making an effort to understand the region for the benefit of the emperor who could not look himself. It therefore gives us a very detailed look at Roman involvement in Colchis. Well, Lazica. I should probably start saying Lazica. He wrote the Periplus in 132 AD, so Lazica it is. When Arian starts meeting the locals of Lazica, his attitude tends to be on the negative side. Instead of lumping them all as barbarians, he does his duty and distinguishes each one of them. But afterwards, he'll still refer to them as barbarians like a good Roman would do. Arian especially applied this term to two sets of locals. One he regarded as friendlier since they set up a statue of Hadrian and inscribed some altars at Trapezus. And the other he regarded as a possible threat to the Roman fort at Phasis. If they're all barbarians... How do you distinguish your allies, Rome? Come on. Apparently, centuries of Greek contact in Lazica meant nothing to Arian, because he became quite pedantic about the city of Apsaris being derived from the name Apsirtus. He comments that this is just a typical corruption of a name familiar in Greek myth. And even when the locals speak in Greek, that's not good enough for him, and he must make a note that the statue of Hadrian is riddled with written errors, I suppose linguistic prescriptivism never goes out of style. Of course, that's not the only thing he found negative about the native tribes. He couldn't help but criticize the terrible workmanship of the statue. Quote, Two altars of rough stone are still standing there, but from the coarseness of the materials, the letters inscribed upon them are indistinctly engraven, and the inscription itself is incorrectly written, as is common among barbarous people. I determined, therefore, to erect altars of marble and to engrave the inscription in well-marked and distinct characters. Your statue, which stands there, has merit in the idea of the figure and of the design as it represents you pointing toward the sea. 
but it bears no resemblance to the original, and the execution is in other respects but indifferent. Send, therefore, a statue worthy to be called yours, and of a similar design to the one which is therefore at present, as the situation is well calculated for perpetuating, by these means, the memory of an illustrious person, end quote. Yeah, I'm not going to say it any better than he will, and the U is, of course, referring to Hadrian. Arian had little to say about the influence of civilized Hellenic culture on Lazica, instead choosing to hyper-focus on the native culture of these so-called barbarians in the area. They'll last longer than Rome, so they got the last laugh. To Arian, the Lazicans are either foreigners and or potential threats to Rome. The only redeeming qualities in the barbarians are to be found in the rulers that were gifted land by Rome. This is because these rulers contribute to the stability of the region and to the imperial order. The exception to this was the Sanai tribe, who remained kingless and were highly resistant to civilized ideas like doing what the Romans said and <gasps> paying taxes. <sighs> taxes are the worst. On a more positive note, Arian loved the landscape and the natural resources of the region. In his Periplus, he made a note of the available shipbuilding materials and defensible sites. The only negative thing that Arian wrote about Lazica, outside of the locals, is that the weather can be exceedingly rough and dangerous when out at sea. He also dislikes how spread out things are in Lazica and the time it takes to get to certain towns or to certain unnamed peoples. While it sounds like he's whining to us, it's actually extremely useful information. He tells us the travel time and distance between locations and the quality of their harbors, anchorages, fortifications, defenses, garrison size, provisions, and other militarily logistics that are important to a commander. There's a good argument to be made that Arian is ensuring Emperor Hadrian sees him as a capable general. As Arian continued his journey through Lazica, he came across a settlement based at the mouth of the Phasis River where he found a cult worshipping a Phasian goddess. He observes that the statue was like the one of Rhea at Athens. The Phasian goddess sat enthroned with lions beneath her and a symbol in her hand. Arian, however, distinguished this Phasian goddess from the one that he worshipped, as he noticed that she was something local and more special to the Colchian tribe based here. It suggests by some historians that this Phasian goddess was probably associated with both Cybele and Artemis, possibly as a localized form of the Zoroastrian goddess Anahita, or even the Bactrian goddess Nana. This goddess was said to rule over all the rivers and the sea. As Arian neared the end of his journey, he finally ran into the location of the Anchor of the Argo, which was converted into a center of cult worship. He was pretty upset at being unable to find any other relics of Jason and his Argonauts there, Although, I would like to once again point out that not running into harpies and clashing rocks is a huge plus for any sailor. He should have looked harder though, because the supposed Palace of Aeides showed up a century later. Totally not a tourist trap at all. While at Phasis, Arian described the construction of a fort there and added some commentary. This fort would have been important to Roman control of the region since the river flowed deep into the Lazica Kartveli lands. This fort would have helped protect the transfer of goods and personnel around Lazica, trade along the Faces River, and give the Romans improved surveillance of the eastern Black Sea and the region around the Faces River. Here we end the Periplus and now enter a brief survey of notable peoples of the region. In the hinterland of Lazica, we find the Lazi tribe. 
whose ever-growing power won them the strategic support of the Roman Imperium. They acted as the first line of defense against incursions from the mountain passes to the north, which ideally would not leak out any further into the Black Sea they protected. However, the power they held in the region took longer than expected to settle, and instability continued to be the norm. With Rome's favorite hobby of starting multiple civil wars starting to pop up more frequently, their attention was drawn away from the Lazica region, and Roman authority began to wane in the area and over their allies. As the region grew more independent, the Lazicans grew in strength. In particular, a last king named Bakur, who was recognized by Emperor Antoninus Pius. After Arian's trip to Lazica, things remained quiet. Cartley had no interest in unifying Flazica at this time, due to issues on their own frontier we covered in the last episode. But of course, trade and cultural cross-pollination did continue between the two regions. The Romans kept a garrison in the region for posterity's sake, but the Lazicans were free to do as they wished if they didn't mess with Roman interest. Early in the 3rd century, however, the Lazicans were temporarily subdued by Emperor Septimus Severus. Then... Cartley was invaded by the Sassanid ruler Shapur I, who was also routed from Armenia into Lazica, although he was able to overcome the Makalonoi and Hinyak tribes. Then, to add to the troubles plaguing Lazica after the Sassanid attacks, there came a series of raids by the Ostrogoths, who in our only account of the incident written by the Greek historian Zosimus, are confused for the Scythian Borani. The Ostrogoths made their way through Crimea, and the eastern Black Sea coast soon came under constant pressure from their attacks. Up until this point, the Bosporan kings had managed to hold back the Gothic onslaught, but much had changed over the past few years, and they were overrun. Upon seeing these invaders, the Lazican coast dwellers used the tried-and-true tactic of running away. They withdrew into the mountains behind the fortifications of their city and started to wait them out. The Ostrogoths landed and began besieging what is now the modern-day city of Pitsunda in the Abkhazia region of Georgia. Luckily for the locals, they had a very large defensive wall and a fantastic harbor to help defend them. Pitsunda's Roman garrison was commanded by a man named Successianus, who mustered both Roman and local troops to hold the Ostrogoths at bay. The Ostrogoths were not expecting such resistance to the siege from the garrison and were worried about being delayed, since every day that they stayed at Pitsunda was another day Roman reinforcements drew closer. The Ostrogoths were eventually repelled and driven out by Successianus' forces, fleeing in the boats left behind by the Bosporans. Successianus' victory over the Ostrogoths gained him recognition from Emperor Valerian and a promotion to Praetorian Prefect, and was assigned to rebuild Antioch. This spelled doom for the Lazicans, as the Ostrogoths soon returned to the Black Sea and ensured the Bosporans remained this time around. The Ostrogoth marauders penetrated deep into the Lazican lands, almost completely bypassing Pitsunda to continue on to Phasis, site of the famous Phasian Artemis, or just local Phasian goddess depending on the historian you ask. Anyway, they eventually failed to siege Phasis and instead pushed into the hinterlands near the city of Archaeopolis, also known as Sikhogoji, or the Fortress of Kuji, part of the first Spaspeto. Zosimus writes that after the failed attempt to take Phasis, the Ostrogoths decided to try their luck with Pitsunda. Without the powerful commander of Successionis, Pitsunda fell easily to the Ostrogoths in spite of the Roman garrison there. The Ostrogoths then added locals to their ranks and crossed the Black Sea to Trapezus, which also quickly fell to the Ostrogoths despite good defenses and a large garrison. 
They destroyed the temples, buildings, and everything of beauty and significance in trapezes. The Ostrogoths returned home laden with treasure, but not before they took a small break to ravage the lands around the city. The success of the Ostrogoths here only incited other Ostrogothic tribes to raid throughout the western Black Sea region and into Bithynia and beyond. The locals attributed the disaster of these invasions due to their having to billet Roman soldiers in the city, and these sieges only reinforced those suspicions. Zosimus' account is pretty much the only account that we have for these Ostrogothic raids, and he doesn't give us any detail about the cities and garrisons of the eastern Black Sea coast. He just wanted to talk about the Ostrogothic invasion, I guess, the success of which he mostly blames on Emperor Valerian moving Successionis from Pitsuna to Antioch. However, I'm hesitant to give Successionis too much credit for the victory the first time around. The Ostrogoths were working with limited information the first time they were at Pitsunda, but they could use the knowledge gained from this first campaign to improve their tactics on the second. There are some things we can trust from his account, such as the emphasis placed on the Black Sea and sea travel in Lazica. The speed at which reinforcements could arrive to different places was only increased by the sea compared to marching on land. Also, Pitsunda was rather well defended even before the Ostrogothic appearance in the region. Pitsunda was a border city and was well used to dealing with pirates, bandits, and difficulties with some of the locals. Gotta remember that these local tribes could be quite fiery when they wished to be. Pitsunda was essentially the last line of Roman control in this area, and, as a border city, was likely more vulnerable than other Roman positions along the eastern coast of the Black Sea. Regarding trapezes, it would rise from the ashes left behind from the Ostrogoths, but it's not in our area to go into more detail for now. After the Ostrogoths, the regular neighborhood menace of the Sassanids were rearing their head. The Sassanids were very tempted to get into the Black Sea territory. Shapur I had invaded and conquered the west all the way to Lazica, and in the battle, captured Emperor Valerian in 260 AD. A Roman author named Julius Capitolinus names the Cartvelli as the intermediaries in negotiations to ransom Valerian. There is also a trilingual Sassanid inscription that lists Lazica and Macalonia as Sassanid territory, but our ever-fiery Lazicans drove Shapur out of Lazica. And that's it. With this episode, we close out Season 1 of the History of Sacredville, Georgia. We'll be back in two weeks' time with Myth 5, Warkag and his sons, from Tales of the Narts, which is based in the Assetia region of Georgia and Russia. Then after that, we'll be back with Season 2, Christianity to Conquest. To support us, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacredville, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacredville.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacredvillogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacredville is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. For more direct support, you can buy us a coffee. The link is in the episode transcription and on our website. Our Amazon wishlist is also available if you'd like to purchase a book for us. Also, a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Madalba Danachvamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacredville, Georgia. See you next time. <laughs> Ja, da war er ganz schön über dich.